1973, the first offshore Europe took place right here on campus at the University of Aberdeen. No one really knew then how the discovery of North Sea oil would change the fabric and fortunes of the region. Now, 50 years on, the focus is firmly on how to accelerate the transition to a cleaner, greener energy future. I'm Laura Grant. Join me in this latest episode of Into the Headlines as we consider how energy has shaped our past and how we are determining its future. Episode 9, Energising the Future. I'm joined today by a number of guests, notably Alec Kemp, Professor of Petroleum Economics and Director of the University's Aberdeen Centre for Research in Energy, Economics and Finance, Dr. Alf Martinez Felipe, Senior Lecturer in Chemical Engineering at the School of Engineering, Dr. Rachel Brackenridge, Lecturer at the School of Geosciences, as well as Professor John Underhill, Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre for Energy Transition. Alec, let's start at the very beginning. What was Aberdeen and its economy like before the oil industry really took off? As a very young academic, I was involved in what was a major study for the Scottish office. Uh, They commissioned studies on regional economies. And so the economics department was asked to conduct what ended up as an interdisciplinary study on the prospects for the northeast economy of Scotland. And that was undertaken in the 1960s. And the main points that emerged was that, well, the northeast of Scotland economy had been stagnating really for a long, long time in the post-World War II period. With um, employment and um, population going downwards, the um, traditional industries like farming, fishing, textiles had been just keeping going but losing employment uh, over the years. Aberdeen itself was holding up because it had more manufacturing like textiles, uh, fish processing, paper manufacturing. But for the medium term, looking ahead 10 years uh, into the the mid-1970s, all our studies were showing that at best the economy could hold the population and employment constant. And it depended on the manufacturing sector holding up reasonably well, because the primary sectors like agriculture, fishing, forestry would continue going down. So it, it was a fairly somber picture. Then, of course, everything changed when uh, the oil was discovered. But uh, at the time, there were uh, a lot of uncertainties about would it become big or, or not big. Well, nobody knew. But in 1970, uh, the Fortis field was discovered and it was a giant field by any way of measuring it. And similarly, just a little later, the bread field was discovered and um, uh, it was also, by any standards, a giant field. How well prepared were we at that stage for what was to come? The um, local economy did not really have expertise in offshore engineering, uh, geology and so on. Uh, And so when the activity of exploration started, it was activities like supply boats. So, for example, uh, the Wood Group, a local company involved in the fishing industry, they could do supply boat uh, activities, food and materials um, being transferred out. And uh, that, that could be basis. But Aberdeen was not in the forefront of that. The first bases were actually at Dundee. BP and Conoco opened a bases in Dundee because 
Aberdeen Harbour was tidal. And the supply boats then, which are smaller than they are now, required uh, 24 hours per day service and deeper waters. And that required a very big investment. And um, the Scottish office actually persuaded the harbour board to um, spend a lot of money deepening the harbour and also strengthening the walls. At the harbour board, which was a trust, they had, in effect, to borrow a lot of money in order to make Aberdeen a port suitable for oil activities. In 1973, the Offshore Scotland Exhibition, what we now know as Offshore Europe, was held for the first time. What are your memories of it? It was held in Aberdeen and on the campus of the University of Aberdeen. It was quite, quite small. The um, activity was promoted by the university because we had been interested in the local economy. Going back to what we we call the Gascon Report, uh, of which I was a a member. And my abiding memory is uh, seeing um, a helicopter landing and then uh, a little while later taking off again. So, so why would um, a very senior figure uh, come to this event? Because Shell and BP had made what they knew were very big discoveries and they wanted to encourage the supply chain to develop, to do all the servicing type work that was necessary to get the exploration going, to get the field developments going. That was the situation in 1973. And um, Nobody knew if the activity was going to become very big or not. In economics, because we had expertise looking at the economics of regional economies, uh, were successful in getting a big research contract with the Scottish office, as it was then, to look at the long-term future, uh, what might evolve from the oil industry in the North Sea and what the opportunities might be for the Northeast economy and for Scotland more widely. So that was in the early days. There were mixed views, uh, including within the university, about whether it was all going to be great or not. We certainly were on the side where we could see there was going to be a a very big potential. And so we uh, we emphasised that. Interestingly, even within the Chamber of Commerce, there were mixed views because what they could see was from local industries, like paper manufacturing, like agriculture, like textiles. They were going to lose workers to work in the offshore because the salaries were very much bigger. Why was that? The salaries were big because, well, there weren't weren't many local people trained there. And so they had to get workers, mostly from the United States, but some from France. They had to get a premium to come uh, and disrupt their lives and come away over here to um, work in the embryonic North Sea activity uh, and spend time offshore. And when they were onshore, uh, the locals uh, could find them uh, with very big hats and very big boots and very big voices and asking for southern comfort in, in all the pubs. Uh, the pubs in Aberdeen had to get southern comfort, which was then starting to compete with our own whiskey. 1973-74, the price of oil went up by 400%. And so therefore, there was a tremendous requirement uh, by the oil companies to get the fields developed because the price was very high. And the government, the UK government, was anxious for that to happen as well because we were importing all our oil then and uh, very high cost if the price had quadrupled. Uh, and so 
Getting the first door was the be-all and end-all. And what that meant in terms of equipment, the UK did not have a, a history of manufacturing all the equipment required for offshore uh, work. So quite, quite a lot were imported from the States in great big aeroplanes because that was the quickest way to get things going. When 75 came, then um, we got first oil initially from one of the smaller fields, but then amidst the much, much publicity, the Fortis field went on stream uh, in, in 1975. Uh, after that, that, production started coming up at, at a, a very strong pace, and the jobs available in the sector increased as well, because the more the number of fields being developed, the more the jobs there would be. That applied not just to Aberdeen, but elsewhere in the UK and elsewhere in remote parts of Scotland where construction yards for platforms were being built. They, they had their rooms, um, but then also they had their busts because in the 1980s, when the oil price collapsed, then a, a lot of investment had, had to stop. In, in Aberdeen, um, for example, a big effect was on the housing market. House prices had rocketed up uh, in the 1970s, and with a lag, uh, more houses were built. But the house builders had a big problem because they needed more skilled workers, more bricklayers and so on to do the work, but there was nowhere to house them to get the work going. So there was a bottleneck. Eventually, more houses were built, Ridge of Dawn, West Hills, for example, but then, in the 1980s, the oil activity went right down and the housing market falls as well. So, comparing the 70s and the 80s, this region experienced both the boom times and then the down times. So, right from the get-go, the energy sector had a huge impact across the board, not just investment in jobs, but housing provision and even what was for sale in pubs and in shops changed. I imagine that influence played a part in the internationalisation both of Aberdeen but the university also? Yes. Supply chain activities were geared towards the North Sea, for sure. And gradually, expertise was built up. So it wasn't just supplying pipelines and the equipment and supply boats. We get into engineering work at the higher technology level. And then the idea was that, well, should we not also be involved internationally? And uh, I can recall that from quite an early date, Ian Wood was promoting that idea that the supply chain, of which he was a leader, should not just concentrate on the local North Sea market, but see the world market. And so that took quite a bit of time to get going, meaning it took quite a bit of time to get a major response and for local companies to um, get involved overseas. But eventually it did. And so subsea technologies, which were developed for the North Sea, then became competitive in uh, markets in all, all kinds of overseas countries. So there was, a, to use a, a phrase we use in economics, learning by doing process in the North Sea, but then going to uh, other countries. And of course, in terms of uh, employment, well, in the early days, it was like people working on supply boats. But of course, we then did have courses developed at RGU, University of Aberdeen, uh, and so on, in offshore engineering. And uh, that meant that well, local people could uh, get employment here, whereas before they would have to emigrate. 
So, I mean, when I was a student at the University of Aberdeen, the great majority of us had to emigrate out of the area. And one of the big effects of the coming of Norcia was that it reduced the extent of outward migration and more employment opportunities for graduates were available lo- locally. And um, of course, the University of Aberdeen and uh, uh, RGU have both since then developed all kinds of courses relating to oil and gas, which has meant that they have grown and also because of their expertise have attracted students from other countries, including developing countries in Africa, where we have a lot of students here, because of the expertise we developed in the North Sea. So that's been a big spin-off effect for the universities over the, the mature years of the North Sea. It's the 50th anniversary of Offshore Europe, and this year's show is very much focused on the pillars of energy security, future talent, innovative technology, and the energy transition. Alf, from an engineering perspective, and Rachel, from a geosciences one, are going to help me dig into, not sorry about the pun, some of those themes in a bit more detail. And I'm going to start with you, Rachel, by asking you to tell me about the work that you're involved in. Yeah, so I'm a geologist by training. So I'm looking at the subsurface, the ground beneath our feet and beneath the North Sea in this particular case. So I look at the what we call the Zechstein salt. So this was... um, over 250 million years ago, we had a big salt basin in where the North Sea is today. And it deposited all these carbonates and these salts. Um, and these have historically been really important for the oil and gas industry. Salt's a very good seal. It doesn't let fluids pass through it. So it's been used to trap hydrocarbons, uh, generate uh, traps to accumulate hydrocarbons. And indeed, at the moment, it's the play, the, the hot play in the North Sea. So um, there's been a couple of recent discoveries in the carbonates associated with the Zechstein. What my research looks at is, so I'm looking at the forward-looking um, energy storage solutions that the Zechstein salt can provide, uh, particularly looking at hydrogen storage. So hydrogen's one, one of many kind of aspects of us achieving net zero, I think quite an important one. So we want to up our generation of probably blue and green hydrogen going forward. And we need somewhere to store that hydrogen until we need to use it. And these salt deposits can provide a really good location to to store large volumes of hydrogen and other gases as well. We can use it to store methane, for example. Main problem is that we don't have very many salt deposits onshore here in the UK. There's a few down in England, certainly none in Scotland. So my research is looking offshore into the North Sea to see if we can move this technology offshore and assess the geological feasibility of the offshore for hydrogen storage projects. Hydrogen is one of the big themes at this year's conference. What are the benefits it offers? Many benefits. There is also a lot of debate over the use of hydrogen. Um, I believe it's going to become really important in electricity generation and decarbonisation of industry. So in an ideal world, we would generate all of our electricity from renewable sources, from wind, solar, tidal. But in reality, these sources, they only generate power when the conditions are right. Um, And that doesn't necessarily link up with when we have the demand. So if the wind's not blowing, we can't generate wind power, for example. 
So where a hydrogen comes in is if we can generate excess electricity when the conditions are right, we can then convert that electricity into hydrogen and store it until a later time when demand exceeds our generation capacity. So we could store this energy by other means. We could use batteries, for example, but we don't really have the technology or the resources to store a whole nation's worth of electricity on batteries. Batteries are very resource heavy. So hydrogen really offers a good solution for large scale energy storage with really minimal environmental consequences. So it's a bit of a no brainer for me. What's the difference between blue and green hydrogen? That's a good question. So blue, blue hydrogen, we can generate from methane directly from natural gas um, and when we convert that methane into hydrogen we get a byproduct of co2 so we need to then capture that co2 um, and store it in the subsurface so carbon capture and storage green hydrogen that comes directly from renewable sources so uh, from wind power from solar power tidal power for example so i think both probably have a place we want to get to a stage where we can really ramp up our green hydrogen in the future though. And is the North Sea a particularly good area for this sort of initiative? Yeah, absolutely. North Sea is a fantastic location for potentially for hydrogen storage. Uh, so my own research and that of others that have looked in other areas of the North Sea show that we have the right geology to make it work. Uh, what needs to happen now is the technology needs to catch up. Uh, but thanks to the oil industry, we have great infrastructure and fantastic expertise um, and skills within the UK. So we can really implement that. Um, once the technology catches up, we can implement it safely and, and rapidly, I'm sure. Uh, there are many other basins around the world where there is this potential and every salt basin is different. So we need to do localized studies in each salt basin, but it's a proven technology um, and it's already being used in various locations around the world. So no reason to suspect that we couldn't do it in the North Sea at scale. This seems like an appropriate juncture to bring ALF into the discussion. You obviously come at this from a slightly different perspective. Tell me about the work that you've been involved in. Well, I, I suppose I wear a few hats here. So on the one hand, I'm trying to help colleagues at uh, the school at the university to support the, their research in hydrogen in particular. And um, I mean, just to try to, to get people together, make some connections with industry if I can and, and get the students to know about its technology. But also I have my own piece of research on, on new materials for uh, electrolyte technologies and trying to improve how they uh, behave in electrolyzers and fuel cells. And that's what I kind of do in, in my lab as well, with my students. And uh, well, very recently I joined the Just Transition Lab where we uh, work across different disciplines, try to, to get um, you know, the energy transition into the communities to understand social aspects and, and, and how the technology can help develop uh, these projects uh, locally as well. You're also director on the board of AREG, the Aberdeen Renewable Energy Group. What does that involve? Well, uh, very exciting as well. So, so the Aberdeen Renewable Energy Group has been here for decades uh, before the energy transition was even anything, uh, pioneering uh, renewable energies here in, in Aberdeen. Uh, actually, the offshore wind bay that we have in Aberdeen, Iraq uh, was, was a really big part of it, uh, pushing for that. So we, we are almost 300 members. We 
put together people from industry, from academia, from the supply chain, and, and we try to connect them as well to help them in projects, to do some formative aspects uh, and, and formative uh, opportunities for them. It's a really good place to be uh, if, if you really want to be part of this energy transition here in Aberdeen. You've also mentioned the H word, hydrogen. As an engineer, why do you think it's something we should be excited about? Well, hi- hydrogen is extremely versatile. As, uh, it's the, the smallest molecule you could, that you could get in the, in the universe. And uh, that has a lot of advantages um, as an energy vector. So you could uh, eventually use it to transport and store the energy to generate from renewable sources like wind and solar, which, uh, you know, change with time and, and place. So you can store and transport this energy using hydrogen. And you could be using hydrogen as well as a brick to build up new fuels or new materials, new compounds like fertilizers that then can be used in, in other sectors. And, and again, the, I think that the key thing for hydrogen is the fact you can use it or you can obtain it from renewable sources. And it doesn't have uh, a carbon atom at all. So when you uh, transform it into energy or you burn it, then you get this water as a subproduct. So the, the carbon footprint of this stage is um, is is very low uh, if you do things properly, and I think obviously offshore Europe is kind of a representation of what's happening all over the world. And hydrogen is is a big big topic in in Europe, but also across across the globe. You mentioned it doesn't have a carbon footprint as such, but is it completely clean? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting and tricky question, which we discuss in our in our lectures in, in the conferences. So it depends on on what states uh, you take it from. Uh, at the moment, uh, there is always a component that's going to have a carbon footprint because, for example, if you're talking about green hydrogen, I mean, in principle, you know, the energy source is wind, which is renewable, but you need to think about the footprint of the production of the plates and the turbines, uh, the materials of the electrolytes uh, that are going to have metals and carbon-based uh, materials as well. So obviously, you know, if you really want to have um, a complete zero carbon footprint, you need to do a proper life cycle assessment. And there's always going to be a point when you can improve that. But, you know, in theory, in the paper, the last stage of transformation is is clean. You only produce hydrogen. That's why it's so important to have a multidisciplinary approach here. It all comes to covering all the stages of the of the cycle of producing energy, in this case, from hydrogen. But, the, the, you know, if you compare it to other fuels that we're using right now, you know, the advantages are, are incredible because you're not producing CO2. The other thing I would like to mention here is when you produce CO2 locally in your boiler or your, in your engine, using another fuel, it's very difficult to capture, whilst if you produce it uh, centrally, it's easier and, and more more effective. So using hydrogen can be definitely very important to evade carbon footprint. Specifically for the North Sea, what's the potential for the hydrogen market? It's huge. We, we do have a lot of wind, <laughs> obviously, and we do have a lot of water in the coast, uh, and we also have a lot of biomass and some sun. So we, we got a lot of energy resources that we could use to turn this into hydrogen. I mean, again, not necessarily 
hydrogen could be more than that. You could use the you know electricity just to put it into the grid. But but definitely in terms of hydrogen, you you have a great potential. We also have the infrastructure and and the skills because we got this uh, oil and gas legacy and a very important industry and network that that we can use. We obviously have um, the culture, and I think I think this is important. We also have you know academia behind us, the universities, the uh, University of Aberdeen, Robert Gordon University behind us. Uh, supporting this these hydrogen economies, and and the links we have obviously with with offshore industries and offshore companies and and the rest of Europe, uh, they're really playing in in our favour. Sounds like we've got everything we could possibly need to make this work, but it can't be that easy. What are the challenges? I guess for me, the main challenge going forward is that we really um, need to up our communication between the surface and the subsurface specialists. Um, it's getting very busy off offshore the UK with oil and gas, offshore wind, carbon capture and storage. Um, and we need a bit more integration of the providers and the regulators who work at the surface and in the subsurface um, to make sure there's no conflicts, basically. So at the moment, wind farms, they get, they get placed where there's no oil and gas um, operations so that they don't interfere and where you know, the ground conditions are sufficient and safe for them to install um, and at an economical cost. But that's not necessarily where it's going to be optimal for hydrogen storage down the line. So they don't, the, the wind operators, they haven't thought about the subsurface and where hydrogen storage might be feasible. So there needs to be some more early communication here. Same issue with the carbon capture and storage. So the recent carbon capture and storage licensing round, the acreage that was on offer was specifically designed to avoid wind farm infrastructure. And I think that was mainly driven by the need to monitor that the carbon was safely stored for a long time frame so, so that there was no conflict between the monitoring operations and the wind farm operations. And again, that's not necessarily linking good geology or the best geology with where the infrastructure is. So a bit more communication and interaction between the regulators and providers would really help maximise our ability to use the North Sea to its maximum potential. Yeah, well, the hydrogen has been a, a topic in Aberdeen for a long time because uh, we were pioneering the hydrogen buses project, for example, in 2015. And we do have now a fleet of hydrogen buses you know, around the city, we do have uh, hydrogen production centers and stations at the core of our communities in Kitty Braster, literally 10 minutes away from Aberdeen University. And that is really good because that, that uh, makes people aware that the technology is safe and, and it can work. So one of the challenges is actually telling people, you know, this, this can work, this can be good, uh, be part of it. And that's why I think the Just Transition Lab is so important as well in this work to, to make awareness of, of the of the relevance of these technologies. I think if, if you ask anyone in the hydrogen world, the main idea that has been floating around for the last years has been scaling up. There's a kind of chicken and egg situation. If you don't have a big uh, market to sell hydrogen, the price is high, but uh, obviously if, it's high, if the price is high, no one's gonna invest in it initially. So uh, we need, uh, 
investment from from authorities. We need clarity on the regulations as well. Um, but I think this is changing. I mean, the last uh, few years we've seen much much more support from uh, the UK and the Scottish governments, not only in hydrogen but in general in the energy transition. So, so I think the challenge is uh, trying to reduce the cost of production, which you know can be abated partially at least by uh, by this scaling up, improving efficiencies as well, including up all the regulatory aspects and and the connectivity with within Scotland, you know, and and the UK. We 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 need to be part of this hydrogen uh, network, but also with Europe, which are our you know neighbors, and and definitely will be part of it. Are there other places around the world which are equally as ready and as poised? Do you know? Are we in a race here? <laughs> uh, well, probably politicians want to see this as a race, but I think it's just a cooperative effort uh, because energy transition is a global challenge. You know, we cannot leave any any country behind. But I mean, if you ask me, I think Scotland is doing really well. The UK is definitely doing well, but I think we are behind countries like uh, Germany, for example, uh, Germany, the north of Europe, if you go to the Netherlands, you go to Denmark, I mean, they've been investing in in hydrogen um, for a longer time than we have. The EU obviously have very strong research programs and initiatives and platforms where they are doing massive projects on, to be honest, it's, it's establishing a regulatory framework and it's establishing a network. Of uh, of how to distribute hydrogen because once you start connecting the dots, then you can have a really uh, synergetic effect. So Europe is definitely a, a, definitely a big player, but again we can benefit from that because you know we could sell our hydrogen, we could get their their hydrogen for our own use as well. But also the you know, Japan and and Korea they are they are pushing very hard on on that too. And in the US, obviously, the United States are are obviously going to boost that. They, they they have a lot of resources as well. They got natural resources they can use for hydrogen production. Canada too with the uh, waterfalls, etc. So, I think I think the big the the big, big economies are all of them have already a plan for this. So we we, we cannot just uh, lose space here. What are some of the other big ticket discussions ongoing at the moment from your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, there's the to put enough framework, we, we talk normally about the energy quadrilemma. So there are these four things you need for, for the energy transition. One is energy security. So we're going to talk about how much natural gas and oil-based resources we're going to need in the next few years. And there's a political debate, as you, you probably know already. So that, that's going to be in the news. That That's going to be, again, a, a question on on, on how we, we cope with that. Oh, this is part of the conversation on carbon capture and storage, which for, for Aberdeen and the Northeast is quite relevant through the ACORN project. Then we have environmental impacts. That's also going to be a, a big issue. I mean, we need to think about what we do and how we do it. Uh, at the moment, I think people are probably more focused on the feasibility of, of what we are doing, how we need to do it properly. And the scaling up, this, this technology is, is definitely going to make a commercially available technology too. So, so that's going to be on the, on the table too. But the, the fourth topic for the Quadrilemma is the social acceptance. So that, that's also a big discussion that 
we, we should put in the agenda and put it forward. There's always this discussion about whether we need to generate molecules or electrons. So whether we want to, to use gas like hydrogen or, or even natural gas or other E fuels like methanol or ethanol that can be produced from, from these renewable sources. Or we, we can just um, improve the grid uh, so we can have more electricity floating around and improve the transmission of the uh, electrical power. But to me, this is um, this is really a kind of a void debate because we need both. So we need to work on on both on both aspects. And what are your thoughts, Rachel? What are the other big ticket items? Um, I guess the one that I'm most excited about that will be discussed at the conference, no doubt in great detail, is carbon capture and storage. So. We've had a recent licensing round here in the UK, and there's been very recently, within the last few weeks, project funding announcements. So it really feels for the first time we've got momentum on a number of projects here in the UK, which is hugely exciting. Um, carbon capture and storage it is a proven technology. We've been doing it for decades in the guise of enhanced oil recovery. And there are now specific sites around the world where carbon capture has been be, is actively being done um, but really in the UK we're, we're still in that learning process so until we start getting these projects up and running we we don't really know how it's going to work in great detail there's still a lot of learning to be done so I think there's yeah great opportunity there and um, very exciting times ahead and I'm sure lots of discussion at the conference on this topic. Jobs were mentioned the workforce of the future is going to be hugely important in delivering the transition. Is it something students are interested in? Yeah, so I was I was recently in, in a couple of events talking about reskilling and the workforce for net zero, and there there are studies uh, which point that ninety percent of the skills needed are already here. If, if you think about, for example, engineering, hydrogen engineering projects are similar to projects that deal with natural gas, for example, in the sense that we, we are still going to be using compressors, we're still going to be using pipelines. Safety is very important as well, obviously. And these things are part of, of the projects that we are dealing with already and people have been dealing with for the last 40 years. It's about changing the mindset on how we connect this sector to the rest of the society and the rest of sectors because uh, the 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 energy future is is about interconnectivity and and I think again most of the of the skills we already have them um, but also these projects maybe be slightly more complex because of this interconnection with different sectors so I think project management. Um, is is something very important. It's one of the skills that I think companies are looking for, and uh, and the, the the critical thinking and having having an, an overview of all the picture globally, but also locally, is very important. And that's what we're trying to do in some of our MSE programs, like uh, the recently launched energy transition systems and technologies, but also sustainable transitions in geoscience and, and so many others in different schools. Now, my final guest today is Professor John Underhill, Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre for Energy Transition. John, Alec Kemp has spoken about the impact of oil and gas on the Aberdeen City region over the years. 
And we've heard from Rachel and Alf about hydrogen and the potential it offers in terms of the energy transition. What's your focus on as we look at the next 50 years of energy provision and North Sea activity? Well, first thing I say, Laura, I mean, in 1973, at the time of crisis in the UK, we had an oil crisis, we had a three-day week, we had coal mine strikes. We also had the first ever offshore Europe took place in and on the grounds of uh, the University of Aberdeen. 50 years on, you know, we're proud as a university to continue our association with an event of this magnitude. Um, and it aligns so well with what we're doing at the university. That is, we're seeking to accelerate the energy transition to a better future. And that goes to the very heart of our current research and training programs. Our center of energy transition, we're dedicated to innovation that ensures countries and communities have secure access to the energy they need at a cost that they can afford, whilst, of course, not destroying the planet and its climate in the process. These key requirements of energy security, affordability and sustainability are absolutely vital in ensuring a transition that works for us all. And at Offshore Europe, we'll be showcasing our research and training in key areas seen as critical in achieving the same, including hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, data and artificial intelligence, uh, and other aspects of the energy transition like geothermal, and indeed the role of oil and gas in that transition, given the difficult starting point, that 75% of total energy that we need to fuel the economy in the UK currently still comes from oil and gas. That is a challenging starting point on our energy transition journey to a renewable, decarbonised, low-carbon future. We've spoken quite a lot about hydrogen, but tell me about the carbon capture and storage work that you're doing. Yeah, so um, as you're probably aware, the industrial emissions are large in the country, not just Scotland, but across the whole of the UK. There are a number of industrial clusters that currently, uh, unfortunately, the carbon that is generated from those sites goes up into the atmosphere. What we seek to do, of course, is to capture, to transport, and to store it safely in the subsurface rather than putting it into the atmosphere. It is really important to decarbonize these particular um, technologies, these particular areas. Now, uh, the UK has actually has uh, a fantastic advantage in this regard because we've had an oil and gas industry that over the last 50 years has... Uh, produced from subsurface sites, some of which actually contain carbon dioxide naturally. In, in other words, it's proof of concept that carbon dioxide can be stored safely on geological timescales in some locations. What we've been seeking to do with the research that we've been doing at Aberdeen University in the Centre of Energy Transition is to screen the North Sea using data um, that is seismic data, well data, albeit acquired in the pursuit of oil and gas, but actually to use it for a different purpose, to characterize the subsurface so that we um, pick the right sites for the right reasons where carbon dioxide can be stored safely and put up a red flag and say, actually, don't use these sites if there is a risk of leakage at those particular points. 
So um, the work that we've been doing is basically to do uh, a subsurface characterization of the North Sea and other parts of the UK continental shelf. And we recently um, published our outputs from the Southern North Sea, which faces the largest industrial emissions at Teesside and Humberside. They produce over 50%, over half of the UK industrial emissions. And adjacent to it, in offshore waters, buried in the subsurface, there are carbon storage opportunities, carbon storage sites. We've been um, characterizing those and then ranking them so that we can propose which should proceed first and which are more challenged. And they may be challenged not only geologically, but also because there is a competing interest in the use of the offshore real estate, the marine spatial planning. What do I mean by that? Well, if we've got a wind farm on the seabed and a carbon store below, if we put the wind farm above it, we have turbines, certainly in shallow water of the Southern North Sea, that are fixed to the seabed. That's a bit like a ski slalom if you want to take a boat to shoot sound waves to look at the subsurface, to measure, monitor, and verify the carbon store. It also means there's a competition between the joint venture that owns the wind farm and the carbon store below. That might mean because of regulation or insurance that it's a little bit more difficult to do or more expensive to deliver. So we've been identifying those sites as well and try to avoid the, the areas where there is a conflict between different renewable technologies. And finally, the work has been looking at well integrity. Over the, the last 50 years, something of the order of 4,000 wells have been drilled in just the North Sea, I mean, 8,000 of the UK CS. Now, wells that were plugged and abandoned when they didn't find any hydrocarbons 40 years ago uh, were abandoned compliant with the regulation at the time, but not necessarily with any thought that 40 or 50 years later we were going to come back and actually reuse the same site for a different purpose. So we've had to also look at the well legacy well integrity because if any of them um, have a flawed cement or plugging um, when, when abandoned, they could effectively be straws to the surface. So if you put any carbon dioxide down in the ground, it's going to come out again. Um, and so we want to avoid such sites. So that's the work we've been doing. We've been doing the geological characterization. We've been looking at the co-location issues, and we've been looking at the legacy well integrity. And as a result, we've come up with proposals that the North Sea Transition Authority and companies have uh, welcomed and embraced because it highlights areas that are more attractive for carbon storage and those that are challenged or should be ruled out. That's the importance of the work. And is this something that could be replicated globally? Yes, absolutely. So a few years ago, uh, Laura, when there was a CCS uh, opportunity in the UK and that, that project was abandoned, Treasury decided there was no commercial case for it. Now, I used to go to the States and internationally and present at conferences on carbon storage. And, you know, to be frank, quite often the lecture theatre would be semi-deserted with tumbleweed blowing through it. In the States, they introduced something called the 45Q tax credit, 
which gave tax rebate to companies to put carbon dioxide into the ground rather than vent it into the atmosphere. So in 2020, when going across just before the COVID pandemic to the States to present on carbon storage, something quite different was in place. The lecture theatre was packed. They wanted to know everything about carbon storage and the lessons from the North Sea. And the work that we've been doing in Aberdeen and in, in this particular research theme now has got traction in Brazil, in Egypt, and it contributed to the recent COP in Sharm el-Sheikh, in Indonesia, in Malaysia. So yes, the answer would be that the lessons we're learning and the advantage we have in the North Sea with 50 years of, of data, characterization of the subsurface, and the appetite to decarbonize to with the net zero targets that the government have put in place in law are all meaning that there is expertise, understanding, data methods, and the appetite and ambition in the UK, which can be exported overseas. So it's a case where the research and the training that we do in this area, it, there, there is um, an appetite for it internationally. So you've mentioned expertise, skills, training. How are we supporting decarbonisation through the skills provision? Yeah, so it is one thing to say that our world-leading research is delivering solutions, but it, it's really important, and I think that Aberdeen is contributing enormously to the reskilling and upskilling of people to equip a workforce that currently is focused on oil and gas with the skills, the knowledge and expertise they need to lead the way in the transition. And I think the universities play a vital role in providing the intellectual capacity and skills that can propel the UK energy industry into what we need to do over the next 50 years. And there are a number of initiatives that um, we uh, as a university are doing in terms of uh, PhD scholarships uh, we lead, the geo net zero, that is geoscience and its role in the low carbon energy transition PhD program. Uh, we have industry funded scholarships towards master's programs across um, the center of energy transition. We have 28 master's programs across uh, four schools that qualify for those, those scholarships. Uh, and the university is also a partner in the National Energy Skills Accelerator, something called NESA which is a collaboration between RGU, North East Scotland College, the University of Aberdeen, and is supported by key partners, Skill Development Scotland and the Energy Transition Zone. NESA works with relevant businesses and training organisations to help to create a more flexible and resilient workforce for the UK's energy sector and seeks to deliver the skills development programmes which are required to ensure that business is ready and has access to a competent workforce to accelerate the long-term drive towards meeting net zero targets. All of these initiatives are relatively new, very exciting, and I think directly relevant to the transition pathway that we're on. And that is all the time we have, I'm afraid. My thanks to everybody who's contributed to this episode of Into the Headlines. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and you found it interesting. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to more information on the various things we've spoken about. And if you're of a mind to, please do like, share or rate the series. 
if you're listening to this before Offshore Europe and are planning to attend, make sure you stop by the University of Aberdeen stand. It's at 2E68 in Hall 2. We'll have lots of people from across numerous disciplines there who would be delighted to speak to you. As for me, I'll be back with another episode soon. But if you just can't wait, you know what to do. Visit abdn.ac.uk slash news to see all the latest stories and announcements. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.